This is the Cherry Leaf Podcast. Before we start this interview, just a brief mention of our Advanced Technical Communication Training Course Bundle. There are now 10 courses that form part of the bundle. We've added a new course on structured writing and a course on UI text writing. Each course is a separate self-contained course and you have access to the entire package of courses and modules from the moment you subscribe. It's a monthly subscription service in the same way that Netflix works. The course modules are delivered over the web in small, manageable video presentations. You can pause the videos at any time and return to the course at times that suit you. If you're only interested in just one or a few courses, you can just take those and cancel. If you're looking for an affordable way to keep your skills in technical communication relevant and up to date, go to cherryleaf.com forward slash training forward slash advanced. So the normal way that we start these interviews or chats on the podcast is just to get to ask somebody to say who they are and what they do. Okay. I'm Lynn Murphy. I'm Professor of Linguistics at the University of Sussex in England. And I write a blog called Separated by a Common Language, which has led to a book called The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between American and British English. Or if you're in Britain, it's the love-hate relationship between British and American English. <laughs> and it's published by One World in the UK. Is it the same publishers in the States? No, it's Penguin in the States. I guess a good starting point would be your professor of linguistics. Linguistics is, is what? Some people describe linguistics as the scientific study of language. I think linguistics covers so many different things that it's easy to see different levels of science and different things that people do. But it's it's an approach to language as an object. You're an object for study as you'd study, you know, as a botanist would study plants. I read the book before Christmas. And then on the train yesterday, I had a reread of some of the chapters. Actually, it was probably more enjoyable reading it a second time than it was the first. Do you want to explain a little bit about what the book covers? It covers a lot of things. So it covers the attitudes by Americans toward British English, by British people towards American English. It describes the history of how they've come to be different and how different or similar they are. It talks about whether they're becoming more similar. And it also talks about, well, a lot of the things that people find, people from one English find odd about the other's English and why any particular thing that the other people do isn't necessarily a bad thing, isn't necessarily a, an illogical thing. And then a part of it that interests me the most is whether there are sort of different cultures of thinking about language and what language means to us in the two countries. I guess there is a big issue that particularly seems to occupy the minds of a certain breed of, of English journalists, maybe in their 60s or 70s, and that is, is there a correct form of English? Is there one country that's doing it right and another country that's doing it wrong? 
you know, there are, you know, just different ways of doing things and, and you consider one to be right or wrong, mostly because you're used to it. So, you know, the things that you prefer are usually a matter of taste and things clang if they're not what we're used to hearing. And so it's just, it's just a clang from unfamiliarity, not a better or worse English. I think you cover it in your book that the amount of difference between American English and, and British English is how big is the gulf be- between them in terms of shared or, or different words and phraseologies? I always like to use the British phrase, how long is a piece of string? Because <laughs> it's, it's really hard to measure. I mean, you can measure things, even, even measuring spelling. So I'd say, you know, it's less than 1% of our spellings are different. But how much are you going to count? Are you going to count the words that are in the dictionary? Are you going to count every word in the dictionary with every possible suffix it could have on it? You know, once you start trying to count, you realize that there are a lot of decisions to be made before you can count. But in terms of other things other than spelling, I've been doing a difference of the day on Twitter every weekday since 2009, and I hardly ever repeat myself. So it's been keeping me going for thousands of days, um, just finding differences that, that I can talk about. But the fact of the matter is they're not the kind of differences that usually result in us miscommunicating. So one of the challenges for technical authors can be that they're working in a team. It may be that the corporate standard is American English with American spellings or or the other way around. If there is an international team, if a British person writes content, is it easy for an American to spot that that is not written by an American? I think a lot of that depends on how familiar the American is with other styles of English. I can notice quite easily in many cases, but that's because I am thinking about things like, oh, that's a you know rather American or British way to use a comma. But most people would just think, oh, I wouldn't put my comma there or something like that. So it's it won't necessarily be this is a foreign English. Mm. The reaction, it might just be, oh, that's not how I would have done it. Or if they're just reading for content, they might not notice at all. So I think you have a chapter in your book about, which one was it then? Uh, Maybe it was the standard bearers or lost lost in translation, I think it was, where you identify some of the the words. And I I found it quite interesting in that there were differences in punctuation and then differences in between how some nouns were treated as singular and plural. Are there anything specific that happened where there are differences between American English and and British English in in that area? Well, one would be the use of collective nouns and how they match a verb. So in British English, one would say things like Manchester United are playing on Saturday or something like that. Mm -hmm. And in American, it would have to be is playing. So those kinds of things people do notice. But they're also not as consistent in either English as anybody thinks they are. But they do stand out for one or the other reader, well, especially for American readers. The the plural things, things like, you know, do you use bed linen or bed linens? Do you pay tax or taxes? Um, the one that always gets people is, you know, do you play with Lego or Legos? You know, maths, and maths, yeah. maths and math. Maths isn't actually a plural. 
that's just an S on the end of a word. But it, you know, people associate it with the, the same kind of thing. So, so maths is one that I talk about quite a bit in the book because it is one that people will claim that theirs is right. Hmm. And they're just two ways of abbreviating a word. You know, so the maths version is a contraction. It uses the beginning and the end of the word. Hmm. And the American is a clipping. And, you know, when people say things like, why do Americans leave the S off maths? Well, it's because they never had an S on maths. There wasn't one to leave off. So one of the things I enjoyed about the book towards the beginning is you demolish some of the strongly held beliefs that there are certain words which are invasive from America and they turn out that they've actually been in British English for hundreds of years and other words which... I guess the other way around, Americans see as distinctly English, and then they're not even English from English, they're from Dutch or from some other, they're a loan word from some other language. Can you tell me a bit more about that side of things and how often that belief or that misbelief appears? It happens quite a bit because our experience of English is just the English of our lifetime. And so you haven't got a good sense that in the 1950s, there were still people in Britain saying fall for the season autumn or that sidewalk could have come from England in the 1700s. Your experience of English is, if it's new to you in your lifetime, it must have come from that other place mm. where they say it now. But the history of the language is much, much more complex than that. And you know, we always have to remember as well that when we talk about British English or American English, that's a lie in itself because there are many Englishes in both places. So something that's seen as a Britishism in America, there might be places in America where they, they say that. One example, I'm not sure if it's still true, is that in San Francisco, people called apartments flats. You know, but that's, that's so-called Britishism. And you get the same thing in the other direction. I met somebody who was working in the UK who came from southeast Texas, I think. And when he came over, he thought people were taking the mickey out of him, teasing him, because they were using very, very Texan phraseology. And it took him a few weeks to realise that actually that part of Texas was using British idioms and British forms of speaking. Yeah, I would, that, I would assume that one of those was reckon. Ah, maybe. As British people say reckon all the time. You know, I, I reckon it'll take about five minutes to walk there. And to American ears, that's a, an extremely hick thing to say. It does sound like Texas. It does sound like the backwoods. But then you come to Britain as an American, you hear all these well-spoken people saying reckon. And another one of those would be et as the past tense of eat. So in polite British speech, et can be the, the past tense of eat, but yes. in, in American English, that would only be a very thick dialect way of saying eight. So one of the things on your blog, Separated by Common Languages, and also Ben Yagoda's similar blog as well, is identifying new words that are entering American English from Britain or British or sorry, American words entering into British English language and the other way around. And I think it was, again, you or, or Ben was talking about the creep of to whom and whom into American English. I, I don't think that, well, in the book, I talk about it as being one ah. people think it's more British to say whom. 
for a while, Twitter, if you set your English to British English, mm-hmm. it said whom to follow. And if you set it to American English, it said who to follow. But if you actually look at the numbers, there is not more whom in one or the other. Um, wow. it, it's been dying a death for centuries. But there is a general feeling that if it's more correct, if it's more prestigious, if it's more um, old-fashioned, you'll find it in Britain. And that's generally a, a stereotype rather than fact. The one that, that both Ben and I have written about re- recently is whilst. Mm-hmm. In that that's something that Americans have not said since the early 1800s, but it's coming back. <laughs> and it's coming back because Americans are more exposed to British English now. Again, that was something I was just reminded me of, that the belief is that it's American English that's invading Great Britain. But certainly it seems to be that there is a trend going the other way. Has that grown because of the internet and British TV being more on, on American TVs? Has there been an increase in the Britishisms going back the other way recently? Yeah, I think there has. This does tend to go in cycles. So in the past, there have been times when America was receiving more British English or more receptive to British English and other times when we've just been oblivious of of British English. But in recent years, because you've got streaming services playing all the television you could want, I mean, when I was a kid, you could watch Are You Being Served? That was about it that you could see of British television on, on my screen. But now people are watching all sorts of British drama, British comedy. There's also a a BBC channel in America now that plays um, Top Gear all the time or whatever Top Gear is now. There's also been just a lot of interest in other British cultural output, Harry Potter being a huge one. I'd say Harry Potter is probably why ginger is used a lot more in America now as a hair color term than it was. (laughs) There's a lot in your book of looking at something and then looking at the evidence and then coming to a conclusion rather than just giving an opinion. That's one thing I did enjoy about the book and being made aware of, of differences that I just didn't, hadn't realised that, that were differences. Again, I think it was either on your blog or in the book about frown, that we both countries use frown in completely different ways. And, yeah. And I think we have to be, yeah, I think we have to be a little bit cautious about that because I think it is a change in progress in both countries. The difference is that the change started in America, and so it's more a more advanced change there. So I think my grandmother would have meant frown the way I say in the book that is more British. You know, my grandmother was not British. The meaning that a frown is something that you do with the top half of your head, basically. Mm-hmm. That, throwing your eyebrows. Whereas, you know, I grew up believing that a frown was turning down the sides of your mouth. And if you ask British people under 30, they'll generally have that meaning. But mm. those sort of over over 50 might not. But the funny thing about it is nobody knew there was a difference. I mean, even the dictionaries did not know that there was a difference until somebody had an accidental interaction where somebody said frowned about a picture that they were looking at together and discovered they didn't mean the same thing. And that just gives you a a sense of, oh my goodness, am I ever communicating with anyone? If we could be using these words and both thinking different things and not realizing we mean something different. 
this is one of the things, particularly with tech, the world of technical communication, is that if you talk about a thing, one aspect that you should do is clarify what is meant by the thing, because there can be modalities, differences. So if somebody is uncertain about phraseology or which words to use, and they don't know what to write, I mean, we don't have an Academy Francaise, as, as it were, in, in for English. If someone's uncertain as to what to write, what's the best thing they can do to try and work out what would work for work in America if they're a British writer or work in Britain if they're an American writer? Well, if you, if you have a suspicion that it might not be right that for the other audience, you know, the first place to go would be to look in the other countries' dictionaries which these days you can do very easily online. If you're a British writer looking at American English to look up in the Merriam-Webster dictionary site, that might help. But that's only going to help a little bit. I think what marks prose out as being British or American is often turns of phrase rather than words. And so what I tend to do when I'm not sure and I'm writing is to look in a corpus or just to Google it, you know, and see how much is this phrase coming up in one place or the other. One thing that you can easily use is Google Ngrams, N-G-R-A-M-S. If you Google Ngram, you will get to the Google Ngram site. And what that does is it looks up in books, in, in the Google Books collection, whatever phrases you put in. So you could compare a couple of phrases and say, well, should I be saying say, bored of or bored at or bored with mm. something. And I could put those all in and say, okay, which one comes up most? And if you click about Ngram Viewer in that, you'll get the instructions for how to separate out British and American there. So you can say, okay, I want to know which people are saying this phrase. And that's very easy to see. Another tool that I use is the Brigham Young University Corpus website and their corpus of global web-based English. It corpus.byu.edu. It's free to use, but you do have to register and maybe endure some, some advertisement if you're not subscribing. But it's free to use. You can go into this global web-based English corpus and just put in a mm -hmm. phrase and it will show you which countries it comes out a lot in and which ones it doesn't. I've seen you mention that in your blog posts and I think on Twitter as well as a reference. So that's actually free for anybody. As long as they subscribe, anybody can log in and, and access that information. Yeah, I mean, I think people often ask me to search these things for them. And for the most part, they can do it themselves. There are a few things that get a little bit tricky. If you're a bit naive about language, you might put something in and not consider, say, I uh, am looking up a word like, well, let's see, jumper. You know, I want to know if Americans say jumper. Well, I'm going to find jumpers there. But if I don't click in and look further, I'm not going to see that. It doesn't mean the same thing that it means in British. So it's a pinafore dress, isn't it, I think? Pinafore dress, yeah, is what a jumper yeah. would be. So, you know, you do have to be careful about not just looking at the numbers and being a little bit clever about how to, how to search for things. You know, so if I wanted to see do Americans say in hospital, you know, I would get every example of somebody saying in hospital gowns. Right. Sometimes you do have to be a little bit clever about how you search for things. And you also have on your blog word of the year 
for America and for the UK. How long has that been going and words have appeared in, in that list? Well, it's been going since I started the blog in 2006, 12 years, 13 wow. words of the year, because one year I did two because I couldn't decide, um, <laughs> 13 in each direction. So I do UK to US word of the year and a US to UK word of the year. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it came in this particular year. It's just that what is the Americanism that's making a big scene in the UK mm. this year or that's done something interesting in the UK this year or something like that. So, for example, the year that I had cookie as my US to UK word of the year, it wasn't necessarily because that was the first time British people were talking about cookies, but because that was the year that the children's program Blue Peter named their pet Cookie, oh. and the or or the children voted for the cat to be named Cookie, and the BBC interfered and said, "No, it's going to be named Socks." You know, so so it was it was a word that was in the news, an Americanism that was in the news in Britain. Going in the other direction, a lot of the British words that end up in America are often kind of naughty because Americans love British swearing. And it's not even all swearing, but part of it is just that if somebody else uses a word that's taboo and it's not taboo yet where you are, you can use it and it can be a, a fun word to use. Bum, not really a swear word, but you know, slightly rude um, was, very heavily used in toilet paper advertisement when you're in America. So those are the ones that I see spreading most easily sometimes in America. But there have also been just, to vet a candidate was one of my early ones because that came from British horse racing slang and was wow. not used when I was young. I, I only was aware of it in the 2008 campaigns there. Hmm. Or Gap Year was one that... Uni, you've mentioned before in the past, if I remember correctly. Yeah, for... It's not one that's been a, a word of the year, and it actually, I believe, is originally Australian. That's what we forget sometimes. Some words like or phrases like cheapest chips and the like are, are from Australia rather than from, from the UK yeah. or from the States. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them go to America via Britain, um, but mm. yeah, there's a lot of English out there to, to take from. And how different is the American version of your book from the British version of the book? Because they've got different covers. They've got different covers. They've got different publishers. And so they went through different editing processes. But the idea was it was edited, copy edited first in Britain and mm. then went to America. And the idea was that the American copy editor would only change spellings and, I mean, Obviously not when I'm discussing the spellings, but incidental hmm. spellings, if I say my favorite word or something like that. Spellings and, and punctuation, because American punctuation is quite different from British. Hmm. When the American copy editor did the copy edit, a lot more was changed. And I had to go back to the British publisher and say, okay, the American copy editor suggested this and I agree. And so, you know, I had to send back 10 pages of single-spaced changes to make again. So we did everything we could to make sure that they were the same. But I'm sure there are a few 
little things that are different. I know at least two people have bought both copies intending to find the differences. And I'd <laughs> love if they ever got back in touch with me and told me. I did write in my English, which is a mix of the two. And so when either editor tried to change something that I said that was more British or more American, I said, no, keep that. And then on the uh, website for the book, theprodigaltongue.com, there is an index of all the incidental Britishisms and Americanisms that aren't in the index. But are in the and you put a test on your website or in the book? I yeah, there, 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 there are tests in both. So there are quizzes at the end of the book, but there are also two other quizzes. How well do you know American or British English on my site? And, and they are harder than the usual quiz, I would say. Mm. Just going back on something you said there, punctuation is one thing, again, for technical authors that they have to, to deal with and to make sure that what they write is consistent with elsewhere. Specifically on punctuation, is, is there a reference site to give guidance on how the punctuation is in American English and, and British English that you know of? I can't think of a, of a single site that, that summarises all that. I mean, I think a lot of style guides will, or punctuation guides will acknowledge some of the differences. One of the main differences is how you treat quoted material, and that's probably going to be less relevant to technical writing than it is mm. to fiction writing. But a big difference, and, and what really differed in my book, was how many commas you use. Americans like commas. And the Oxford comma, are they fans of that? Americans use the Oxford comma way more than British writers do. And then just commas around adverbs and things like that, mm. which I have to say, being used to the American way where things are very broken up with commas, I often have to reread British sentences to figure out, okay, where's the phrase, which, which <laughs> part is this? So it, it does affect immediate readability sometimes. Where do I breathe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, if people want to follow you on Twitter, or read your blog. Mm -hmm. What's your blog called and what's your Twitter handle? My blog's called Separated by a Common Language, and you can just search for that name and you should find it. And on Twitter, I'm linguist, which is L-Y-N-N-E-G-U-I-S-T. Right. And the book is, in both the States and the UK, is called The Prodigal Tongue, The Love-Hate Relationship Between British and American English. And is there a Kindle version? Um, There's a Kindle version and there is a, an audio version. Oh, audio version as well. That's narrated by yourself. No, it? it's not. It's narrated by a very good American audiobook reader. I have not listened to the whole thing. I've only listened to the beginning. And I do oh. wonder what happens when I start talking about pronunciation. <laughs> switches into a cockney accent or yeah something. <laughs> <laughs> lovely thanks that was wonderful thank you brilliant yeah. i should say using the english word awesome i'll put a link in the show notes to the book and to your to your website and to to your twitter lovely thank you so much great lovely to speak to you thanks lovely. lynn yep bye-bye <laughs>